Uh, thank you very much. By the way, um, when I parked my car this morning, there, there's a car with its lights on out there, a Jeep truck, uh, 4DTK966. So if that's your truck, go out there now and turn off those lights. Um, I'm delighted to be here. I, I am just another Washington lawyer, though. I think you better say that up front. I was recently asked by a cab driver a, a troubling bioethical question, and I'm supposed to be a bioethicist, so I, I, I did search for an answer. He said, what's the difference between a sperm and a lawyer? And, and I, I couldn't come up with an answer. He said, well, at least the sperm has a one in one million shot of becoming a real human being. I did have the pleasure of um, editing this, this book, Fatal Harvest. Uh, there's a very large kind of um, coffee table uh, book. So you'll see it in the bookstore. Um, somebody told me that I should um, show this to Ann Veneman, the secretary of the USDA, and maybe she'd change her mind. And the only possible use I could see for a book that size would be as a two by four in this case. Um, <laughs> but there's also a smaller book, The Fatal Harvest Reader, uh, this, I, I sort of call them Dr. Evil and Mini-Me uh, here. And um, it was a real, I, I, know, I don't know if you can really take credit for editing a book with Wendell Berry. It's very easy to, you know, edit Wendell Berry. You just say, great, Wendell. <laughs> but people have said, well, you know, what are you doing as a lawyer with this book on agriculture? And I, 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 I want to say that I did try and farm for about three and a half years in the middle 70s. I worked for a dairy farm uh, outside of Hudson, New York, Claverack, New York, with a wonderful Swiss-German farmer named Henry Gouldy. And after about three and a half years, Henry, who was a very kind-hearted man, took me aside and he said, I have to ask you to leave the farm uh, because I need to stay in business. Uh, but he said, you seem like a very bright young man, and maybe you should go into law or do something else to help protect the things you love, like farming. So I, I took his advice. That, that, that followed an incident where um, I was trying to get manure from um, under the barn out to the fields, and I was driving an old John Deere tractor with the uh, manure cart in the back. And um, I don't know if, how many of you have driven those old John Deeres, but there's two brakes uh, that you have to press down simultaneously. And as I accelerated out past the, past the milk house, my foot slipped from the two brakes to the left brake, which turned the entire tractor, went right through the door of the milk house. <laughs> and um, Henry was milking at that point. <laughs> And, he's, and he said the cows jumped two feet straight in the air and came back down. He'd never seen it before. And um, they gave more milk uh, that evening than they'd ever given before. Uh, but virtually no milk the next two days. Uh, which is, I think, bovine post-traumatic stress disorder in its, uh, in its, in its keenest form. Um, as we all know from our personal lives, um, by the way, no good deed goes unpunished. So poor Kenny, with that wonderful introduction, inviting me to speak today. Um, it is sort of 10 o'clock-ish on Sunday morning. So the, the, the preacher homily in me is just urging to come out this morning, which is both your, un, your unfortunate destiny for at least the next few minutes. Um, and I wanted to talk about, you know, in the introduction to uh, Fatal Harvest, I say that the industrial food has not just brought us to an environmental crisis. Uh, but also to a moral crisis. 
Uh, and in his wonderfully written essay, uh, saying Wendell Berry has uh, the first paragraph I'm just going to read to you, it's, 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 it, it, it really brings us to this moral crisis uh, that we're in. Uh, Wendell says this. He says, one of the primary results and one of the primary needs, one of the primary results and one of the primary needs of industrialism is the separation of people and places and products from their histories. To the extent that we participate in the industrial economy, we do not know the histories of our families, or our habitats, or our meals. This is an economy, and in fact, a culture, of the one-night stand. I had a good time, says the industrial lover, but don't ask me my last name. <laughs> Just so, the industrial eater says to the industrial hog, we'll be together for breakfast. I don't want to see you before then, and I won't care to remember you afterwards. So I wanted to put the context of our work, all of our work together, organic and beyond this morning, into at least, or at least explore with you, uh, the moral context of this. And um, to do so, and given uh, uh, what's happening in Washington, uh, the pathology that's happening in Washington. By the way, we need like a thousand good Jungian analysts immediately in Washington, <laughs> D.C. If you know friends, send them. We have some real problems there with uh, some major projection. Um, <laughs> I call it projection politics, by the way. Have you noticed this? I mean, it's amazing. It's shadow projection on anybody who's darkened in the Middle East, and it allows them to do just about anything they want. Um, but about 30 years ago, uh, I was in New York City um, and uh, part of the anti-Vietnam War movement, and uh, I saw a play. And the play was called The Rescue, and it was very badly acted in that sort of earnest acting that was de rigueur at the time. Um, and the plot was pretty cliché, but as the play went on, I got more and more absor absorbed in it. It, it was about a, a pilot, an American pilot, who's doing a bombing mission over North Vietnam, bombing various villages and targets, and he gets shot down, and the play begins with him sort of limping off with a broken leg. And he gets taken in by a North Vietnamese farmer who defends him, because you know, the uh, a North Vietnamese army brigade comes by, and he says he's not there, and the angry neighbors whose farms have been destroyed and some of their relatives have been killed, he, he protects the, the, young, the young American pilot and um, who slowly recovers, and to give some romantic interest, the farmer has a beautiful daughter. And over a period of, uh, of time, the, the young American pilot uh, really comes to appreciate, he works on the farm, appreciate the farmer, and falls deeply in love with the daughter. Uh, the denouement of the play happens when a group of Green Berets comes in. They've actually broken international law to cross the boundary in North Vietnam to save the young pilot. And there's a greeting as the Americans hug each other, and the young man does say, you know, as much as I love it here, I, I, I do want to go home. They say, one problem, we broke international law to get here, you have to kill uh, the farmer and his daughter. We have to kill them as security risks. Uh, and he says, you can't do that. They protected me. They're, they're not going to say anything. They protected me for months. Sorry. And when he sees that the orders are intractable, the young pilot says, well, at least let me do it myself. And so he takes him into a room. He pulls his revolver, and after a short period of time, he shoots himself. I remember afterwards, because there had just been the bombing of Cambodia and the, sort of the coffee house conversation afterwards, you know, everyone was talking about the politics, but I remained uh, just completely involved and absorbed in this, in this dilemma, which subsequently I've called uh, the pilot's dilemma. I mean, here is a young man who's thought of even as a hero for dropping ordnance, as they call it, at 30,000 feet on targets, killing men, women, and children, destroying their lives. But face to face, after he had a relationship with these people, he killed himself 
rather than escape and kill them. And over a period of time, I've come to believe that this palace dilemma is not some unique dilemma of this pilot, but something that we all face in a technological system, and um, large-range technological system, and is really at the basis of the moral problem with our industrial food system and so much of the rest of our industrial system. You know, I've never heard the word evil used more than I've heard it in the last year. We have axis of evil and uh, every version of that evil, and, um, and indeed there is evil out there. But I think we tend to concentrate, and I've never heard a sermon yet, that didn't concentrate on kind of a hot evil, on evil on, on people who are psychologically pathological or weak or morally compromised, and we certainly have that. There's no shortage of greed, lust, anger. We know through terrorism, uh, we, we know the prejudices of, of hate homophobia, sexism, racism, and the horrible damage they cause. But now, 30 years later, as I, as, I, as I look at the world, and I look at global warming, and I look at genetic engineering, I look at our industrial systems of energy and agriculture, I'm convinced that the real evil of our time is not this individual hot evil we continue to concentrate on, despite the real suffering it causes, but rather a cold evil, an evil that is created not by individuals, but by the technological system in which we all live. Uh, you know, I've been in a lot of corporate boardrooms and they don't do high fives every time that, you know, uh, they have a policy that, uh, that destroys people or their environment. You know, the, International, uh, the Institute for Policy Studies just came out with a study on structural adjustment programs. As you all know, the World Bank and the National Monetary, Monetary Fund grant huge grants to third world countries, which often are for very large industrial projects. And then when the debt comes due, usually through corruption or just through the fact that these projects don't work, they can't repay that debt. So they force structural adjustments, a lovely cold evil term, on these countries, which means they cut their environmental policies, their human health and welfare policies, their education policies, unemployment insurance. All of these things are cut. And IPS said that because of these structural adjustment programs, 16,000 children die each day. 16,000 a day in the developing world. What if there were terrorists or a sniper that was killing 16,000 people a day? Where are our preachers, where are our ethicists at this slaughter of cold evil, this gray eminence that's, that's part of our system? And industrial food is a classic example of this, absolutely classic example of cold evil and the number one thing about cold evil, which is its distancing. You know, I'm, I'm old enough to have been brought up with great bromides like, um, oh, I don't know, Better Living Through Chemistry? <laughs> yeah. you know, progress is our middle name. And uh, Marty Mellon, uh, a wonderful scientist, a unit of concerned scientist, showed me this big full-page Life magazine ad that said, DDT is good for me, and it showed a Oh, a farm wife tripping out of her little you know, farmhouse and she's singing it. And the me has lots of little E's on it with eighth notes and sixteenth notes and, and it says DDT is good for me, it's good for the cows, it's good for the farm. In this artificial is better. I always thought about the reductio ad absurdum by the way this is the Jetsons. Does anybody here remember the Jetsons? Yeah. Around the Jetsons? Do you remember what the Jetsons ate? Pills. If you want to know the, the, the reductio ad absurdum of industrial agriculture, it is that we're all going to be eating pills. 
The artificial is better, is pills. You know what they drank? That yellow stuff they drank, which we all assumed was Tang, because after all, that was the drink of the astronauts. But this artificial is better, the massive uses of chemicals, this, the, the, the view that nature is something to be, as, as Bacon said so many centuries before, a whore who needs to be tamed. That view, that mechanical view of agriculture, really survived after World War II for almost 50 years. And one of the reasons that it survived, one of the reasons cold evil of industrial agriculture is, has been with us is the fact that our demographic changed remarkably at that time from a population, the majority of which worked in the soil, it became a, a primarily urbanized culture where we lined up in super, supermarkets for slick packaged foods. And as Wendell said, whose history we knew very, very little about. And in this distance, in this distance, the huge eco crimes and the social crimes of the industrial agriculture system thrived. It was their crucial cover, this distance. And the crimes were there. During that period of time, we lost two million farms and seven million farmers. And the recent census said by 2008, per capita, farming will still have the greatest job loss of any sector in the United States economy. And as we know, this is, these aren't just statistics. Uh, last year, the University of Kentucky came out with a study that showed in the Kentucky, North and South Carolina area, over 1,100 farmers committed suicide. In Nebraska, Every year, we're seeing between 50 and 80 suicides. So by the way, when people tell you industrial food is cheap, how do you essay into that price, the loss of farmers, farm communities, the tragedies in each one of these families? Seven million farmers, two million farms. And of course, it isn't just the, the farmers that were destroyed in this hidden onslaught. Topsoil was lost at 17 times greater rate than could be replaced. We lost 75%, as so many of you know, of our, of our crop diversity, 97% of our vegetable diversity. And despite Rachel Carson's silent spring, which is, this is the 40th anniversary of, by the way, uh, more than 700 million birds become ill each year because of our pesticide use, with over 60 million dying. 70% of, of the species on the endangered species list are there because of farming or ranching. So when, when we call it fatal harvest, it's not rhetorical. But something happened on the way to their food future that they could not have predicted, and they did not predict. Um, they assumed, I think, that we were inevitably on a path towards the Jetsons with that little tablet in the middle of our table. And maybe it did start with Rachel Carson, who 40 years ago, fighting cancer herself, wrote Silent Spring. And she began to make the connections. This distancing, this cold evil they were thriving on, uh, Ms. Carson began to say, no, we're, we're not going to accept that distance. This is the chemicals that we're using. And in a lovely sentence of, of Rachel Carson, she says, every time we substitute something artificial for something natural, we retard the spiritual growth of humankind. It's a sentence I like that. And I think in that sentence, she encapsulates the moral and spiritual beauty of the work that we do. And of course, it wasn't just her alone. I, I remember having the privilege of, of meeting and working briefly with Cesar Chavez. And he was able to make those connections, wasn't he? He was telling every consumer out there, every time you reach for a grape, you need to think about the people that pick that grape. 
and the conditions they're living in. You cannot just pick it as an alienated consumer. You have to think about that, and people did. And then within a couple of years in Maine and here in California, the organic food movement began. Now, as you know, it's the fastest growing sector in U.S. agriculture, multi-billion dollar industry. Tens of thousands of farmers involved. And we're also not just having the organic movement, we have a whole beyond organic movement where people are working on farming, marketing products, as so many of you are, products that are local and appropriately scaled and humane, socially just, biologically diverse. And one of the things that's part of my dream that we have in the Fatal Harvest is a merging of agriculture with wildlife protection, of farming with the wild, that protects wildlife habitats. They did not, they did not predict this. But now that they've seen it, they're coming after it. The organic and beyond movement is being threatened. The reason we call it the organic and beyond movement is because it has two goals for us. One is to protect the organic standards as we currently see them. And as a basement, maybe even a sub-basement uh, of American agriculture, depending on what you think about the standards, but definitely the floor. And above that, we need to build this beyond organic house. So we protect the standards while we evolve the ethic. Protect the standards and evolve the ethic. That's what we're trying to do. And let me tell you from... And let me tell you from my perspective uh, a little bit of what this entails. Um, from what were the two greatest threats we see, and, and um, I experienced this firsthand in my work on genetic engineering. You know, a few years ago when I was writing the book The Human Body Shop that, that, that Kenny was talking about, I went out to Beltsville, Maryland, uh, where I met a guy named Dr. Vern Purcell. And Dr. Purcell was taking human growth genes and putting them into pigs. He wanted to create really big pigs to feed the world. And uh, the pig I saw, uh, pig 6707, uh, it, it didn't work. Uh, what had happened is that the human growth genes had swelled the musculature of the pig and basically swallowed up the pig's uh, skeleton structure. I could not photograph him without putting him up against a plywood while he was cross-eyed, bow-legged, uh, and he was really a tragic comic creature of, of this. And I asked Dr. Purcell, I said, Vern, what happened here? He said, Andy, he said, you know, the Wright brothers didn't make it on their first try either. Now, uh, Vern had followed a, an experiment that was done by Dr. Ralph Brinster in 1982 at the University of Pennsylvania, where he had, he had taken these human growth genes and put them into a mouse, and he created a giant mouse. Uh, and it was on the front page of the New York Times, Washington Post, Science Magazine, Nature Magazine. They said, this huge mouse they called Huma Mouse. And next, it's normal sibling who did not have the human growth genes in every cell of its body. This one other one did. Now, after the fear died down, people said, what are you going to do with a really huge mouse? I mean, <laughs> Halloween, I mean, there's some possibilities here. Uh, but old Vern Purcell said, no, we're going to do this with pigs. And more recently, several companies are doing this with fish, genetically engineered fish, by the way, taking these human growth genes. I mean, when you think of the beauty, the beauty of the sound. I was just came from Alaska where I was working on the aquaculture issues and I had the privilege of standing in a river and feeling those salmon coming through my body and hitting my chest and hitting my, you know, standing as the tide was coming in and then seeing the beauty of their cycle that they self-regenerate through their death and that the, even their flesh feeds the, the eagles and the bears and actually provides the food for other fish and the basis for the nutrient cycle in the river and for their own offspring. 
This is so beautiful, but you know what they're doing. Um, these are Aquabounty and Wirehouse are these companies. They are putting human growth genes to make these salmon grow incredibly large, incredibly fast, and then chicken genes so they don't, that will change their reproductive patterns so they don't have to go up to the rivers. And so they, they can spawn solely in the estuaries. And this is the context, I think, that we need to look at the biotechnology revolution in. You know, when I was younger, and I know so many of you people, my comrades out there, we, hit, we always thought that eventually E.F. Schumacher, that wonderful prophet and great man, was going to be right. That we knew that technology no longer was going to be able to support, sustain life. We knew that technology was destroying life. And we said we're going to have to devolve our technology to appropriate technology that will fit our living systems. It was inevitable. What we didn't realize is that they had another plan. Let's not change technology so it fits life. Let's change life so it fits technology. Let's change life so it fits technology. So if you pray, uh, spray too many herbicides on, on your crops, what happens? Destroy the crops. Right? Monsanto had a really interesting idea in this entire mindset, this worldview. They said, no, 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 we're not going to devolve our, our herbicide use so it fits the crops. We're going to change the crops so they can withstand any amount of our roundup we want to put on them. And that's it. 50% of your genetically engineered crops out there are created by Monsanto to withstand any amount you want to put on a roundup. Let's change life so it fits technology. By the way, about 60 million of us take psychotropic medication to get through the day, and about 80 million to, get, to get, take some kind of medication to get through the night. So this isn't just about crops. We're actually changing our own biochemistry to get through an industrial system which was never made for people. So the problem here is we have a biological threat to the organic and beyond movement. If they are able to get the approvals they're looking for right now of these fish, of wheat, of rice, of all of our fruits and vegetables, and all those are coming up in the next four to five years, they will biologically so pollute our seed system that we will not be able to have organic food. There will be no, no, no possibility for it. Uh, you can go to the Center for Food Safety table, and there's a number of other organizations, and look, and I'm sure you're already involved in this fight, but if you're not, please, this is the biological threat to our organic and beyond future. The second major threat is corporate. Right now, the Bush administration is openly hostile to the organic and beyond movement. And Veneman has said that organics is a failure, and biotechnology will solve the problems that organic sought but failed to solve. I was in a recent speech right here in California. They're stacking the National Organic Standards Board against us. We just sued them on Wednesday for not putting a peer review panel in to review what they're doing. So this is, we need to defend against the corporate takeover, which is being sponsored right now by the Bush administration. That's the biological and the corporate threat to our future, which we have spent so long, the speech that we spent so long doing. And ultimately, I think that we need not only to fight these legal battles and fight the biotechnology takeover, but I think we also need to, you know, it isn't just enough to stop the bleeding. I think we also have to change consciousness. And there's a, a few ways I think that we can do that very briefly, and I'll finish with this. One major step on this, I think, is I'm sick of the word consumer. I, I, you know, Fires consume, they used to call tuberculosis consumption because it consumed the bodies of its victims. I mean, I love Ralph Nader, he was a teacher of mine, but I think it's time to put that away. You know, whether we like it or not, and believe me, I don't 
I don't always stand up to this standard myself, but whether we like it or not, we're not consumers, we're creators. Every decision we make on the food we grow, the food we buy, and not just the food, the music we listen to, the music we make, everything we do, we're actually creating a new future, a different future, good or bad, for the earth, for ourselves, for the future generations. We need to, to take that responsibility. It's really the only way we're going to be able to breach this distance. And the one thing I've learned in this regard is that there really is no healing without relationship. This is hard for some of us guys in therapy, by the way, ladies out there. We, you know, we, we, it's hard dealing with this sometimes. <laughs> it took me a long time to figure this out. But there really is no healing without relationship. And when we apply that to the food system that we're looking at, that is the agenda of Organic and Beyond. How can we create a relationship between all of us and the food we eat? You know, the creators to the farmers, each and every one, the, you know, the wonderful CSAs we're looking at out there, the farmers markets, that's all about creating a new relationship. Remember our pilot's dilemma that I started with? In a way, his suicide was his redemption because it created relationship. We could not commit these crimes if we were truly in relationship. We couldn't. So I think that the, the organic and beyond movement then, yes, it is an environmental movement. And yes, it is a political movement. Eating is a political movement. It's a political decision. But I also think it's an extremely important moral and spiritual battle that we're facing against the governing evil of our time. And we're defeating the alienation and distance of this technological cold evil with the one antidote that it cannot handle, and that is relationship. Thank you very much.